right, KISS Army. Welcome to the KISS FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today and letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. We hope that you enjoy. 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 And what is this for? What are you, what are you, what are you going to be doing with this? So I'm going to be uh, doing a 30th anniversary uh, online feature about the Crazy Nights album on one of my websites, kissmonster.com, um, around the week of the anniversary. Each day an interview with someone associated with the album or tour is going to go up, plus some other features that I've written about the tour and uh, about the album. And, uh, you know, awesome. celebrate, you know, it, it was supposed to be a bigger album than it was. Um but you know, it's an important yeah. one. To, it's an important album to me because it was the first Kiss album I ever bought new. So, um, oh wow, okay. That that's kind of where my motivation's coming from uh, to celebrate one that a lot of people kind of dislike these days. But there you go. I I think it's all good. <laughs> yeah, well, it seems that a lot of people disliked it then too. You know, I really, uh, you know, it was a. Uh... It was it, it, it was a bit uncomfortable at times. It, it was it was a tough album to get into, and I, I remember sitting at the bus stop after buying it, putting it in my Walkman, and kind of my jaw opening up and just like hanging open with what is this? Uh, so there you there you go. That, that was the 14 year old me responding to it, uh, and it was in less than positive terms compared to all the other albums that I had experienced. So. All right, want to jump in? Sure, let's do it. What I always like to do at the beginning of an interview is just set the stage um, about who mm-hmm. is Gary Corbett and how did you just get into music and why the keyboards? Well, it's it's something that kind of happened at a really early age. Um, I think it primarily happened because uh, my aunt had a piano in her house. And before I was of age to go to school, my mom would spend a lot of afternoons with her and, you know, I would have to be, keep my time, get my time occupied. And, you know, so I, I used to sit at the piano and just play the piano. And, you know, obviously as a three or four year old kid, I wasn't really playing the piano. I was probably more banging on the piano, but I, I was picking out melodies or doing things enough that my parents said, you know, it, he seems to have a, something for this so let's uh, give him some lessons and see where it goes and so it started there and uh i started taking lessons when i was four so it's you know i think i, I basically i learned how to read mu- music before i learned how to read english so <laughs> so it's been uh you know my whole life i don't remember a time when i didn't play so so from that that way of really explaining it, it was almost inevitable that you'd end up doing music from from that early phase yeah. Yeah, there was never a doubt about it. I mean, I started earning money at it at 10 years old. Um, and, you know, from the time that the Beatles came out, the Rolling Stones, and then and then ultimately the Dave Clark Five, because they were the first ones of the British invasion that, that had a keyboard player. So, you know, once those, those guys came on Ed Sullivan, I was hooked. And I knew that that was what I was going to be, you know. I mean, I had Beetle, I used to wear Beetle boots with my Cub Scout uniform. I was always... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was always into it as a little kid, and it was always. It, it, there really never, it, there didn't really seem to ever be a doubt in the house uh, uh, that that's what I was going to do because a a because it's what I said I wanted to do, and you know one thing my dad always instilled was, if you want to be a musician, 
you you can't just be a rock musician and you can't just be, you know, you, you have to be able to earn a living as a musician. And that involved learning more than just what I wanted to play. So, you know, I always had that approach, you know, I learned all styles of music. I learned, you know, pop music, but I also learned older big band music and played with older I I was always the youngest person in the bands I played in as well. So it just was that that was it. I never had another job my entire life. That, that's a fantastic story to have that, you know, you've had this since what, age three or four and you know, you've done it all the way through. So, you know, th- yeah. th- that's, that's a fantastic one for, you know, everyone else out there who jumps from one thing to another to just have that one passion, that one focus. What was your path into professional music? You said that you're always the youngest member of the bands that you're in. When did you start playing in bands and when did they get serious enough to really start saying that you're going to make a living doing it? Well, uh, I was, I, I started working and getting paid and doing gigs at, at age 10. And of course, you know, at that point, I wasn't old enough to get myself to the gig. So my dad was my chauffeur, roadie, car- equipment carrier, and setter-upper, and you know all of that stuff. And I used to get hired for jobs. I took piano lessons at a, at a place that taught all instruments. And they, they also had these classes that they called the combo classes, where they would invite the... Uh, more promising students for each instrument. And on Saturday afternoons, one of the people, the teachers that gave lessons would actually teach, uh, like they put together bands and basically teach you how to play in a band at that point. Because, you know, it's a little different than sitting and playing the piano by yourself. And so, you know, you have to play differently to accommodate the fact that there's other people playing. And so it, it was just a, Another afternoon activity, I guess, to keep me off the street. But, you know, we used to do these things every Saturday. And the woman who owned the school was enterprising enough to capitalize on it. And she would, you know, hire us out for Sweet Sixteens or Bas Mitzvahs and Bar Mitzvahs or, you know, younger kids' parties. But nonetheless, we would be working on Saturday nights, you know, and we go out and go play for a couple hours at a party and I get paid 10 or $15. And, you know, so I, I started doing that at about 10 and then I started working with like the kind of bands that, you know, played at weddings and bar mitzvahs and all that stuff where I had to put on a black suit and go play with a sax player, you know, and like at that point it was always older guys. And, um, and I also used to spend my summers, in the Catskill mountains at a bungalow colony, which was popular back in the fifties and sixties. And people would, you know, rent these cottages basically for the summer and they would have a rec hall. And every Saturday night there would be an entertainment. So they'd have like a trio, a drummer, keyboard player, and a sax player. And they played dance music for a few hours. And then around 11 or 12 at night, they'd have a singer or a comedian or both come in and do like a sit down show for the people. And then they have dance music again afterwards. And so, you know, being up in the country for the summer anyway, at around 13 or 14, I started doing that where I had a, a set every Saturday night at a specific place. And I did that for like three or four summers. And then I started doing it in the actual, once I got my driver's license, then I was able to be a little bit more, uh, free about like 
not having to involve my dad, you know. So yeah, that, the driving license is the uh, the ultimate freedom, and then you're on your own, and <laughs> yeah. you can go where you need to, when you need to, and thanks, dad, for all you've done. But uh, I'll yes. take it from here, so to speak. Yes, yes. Where were you growing up? Uh, because when you say the Catskills, that you know that bespeaks upstate New York to me. Yes, I, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. All right, okay. Yeah, so I I was um, yeah I, I lived in Brooklyn until '97, um, my entire life, and so. You know, that was the regular thing for people like my parents always wanted to get us out of the city for the summers because that was when all my friends w- would get in trouble, you know, too much free time on the streets in Brooklyn. And plus the, the summers in New York City was so much hotter and he- more humid and everything than upstate. So it was a nice way to, you know, have a vacation for the summer. My mom would be up there for the whole summer. My dad would commute back and forth. He would come up to the country on Friday afternoons right. and he would leave Tuesday morning, drive straight into work. And then, you know, sometimes he'd get up, up there as early as Thursday night, but always by Friday afternoon, his job allowed him to take the Fridays off and Mondays off during the summer so that he could be up there with us. And so that was the way I grew up. Um, my entire life, all the way till the time, once again, till I was like 17 years old, every summer was up at the, up in the bungalow. And so that's how I always spent my summers. And of course, as a kid, you can't wait until you could stay home with your friends. But, you know, my parents would never allow it. But then once I was old enough to, once I graduated high school, and then I, that's when I really started getting more into like the, trying to be in a touring band and stuff like that. You know, the real, the real music is stuff so so where is your entry point into what we call the real music biz you know and, and that is a, you know for want of a better term a proper band the summer the summer of 76 is when i graduated high school june of 76 and that summer started with me having a, a gig up in the catskills at this really cheap oh i guess like very much like the resort and dirty dancing you know it was uh it wasn't one of the higher level ones. It was kind of schlocky and, you know, uh, it wasn't a really good gig. But and I, it was a trio with me, a drummer, and believe it or not, the instrument that played the melody was a trombonist. <laughs> and <laughs> so the summer started that way. And two weeks into the summer, I had had enough and quit. And then I got a call like three days later to come back to the city, there was an act, uh, a, a, a woman named Cherry Vanilla, who was a, um, well, she started out as a public relations person for David Bowie's company, Main Man Productions, which at that time in New York City was a pretty cool job. You know, it was Max's Kansas City was happening, and, you know, that was the um, kind of like the glam rock right before punk, as punk rock was starting. And she uh, decided she wanted she was going to be a singer, and um, I got a call to be in her band. And so she was a regular at Max's Kansas City, and we would we travel. We went up to Boston and played the Ratskeller and a bunch of different things. And we did Max's Kansas City did a a record every year uh, of all the top acts that played there. And on the Max's '76 album we did a track for, for that. So we went up to a studio in Massachusetts to record it. And, uh, so I guess you could say that was really the, the first uh, gig I had that was 
that was supposed to have the oppor- the, the chance to actually make it big, although it didn't. <laughs> but uh, I guess you could say that would have been the first. But um, in 77, um, I got a call to play with Ian Hunter. And uh, right. he had just released, yeah, he had just released the album called You're Never Alone with a Schizophrenic. Uh-huh. And a buddy of mine was actually the keyboard player, but his father had passed away the night before they were leaving for the tour. And so I got that last minute call of, can you, can you be on a plane tomorrow and, you know, fill in for him for a couple of weeks. And, you know, and I did, and, you know, so I guess that's really where it all kind of got started. And, you know, I started meeting people that, as a matter of fact, um, a, a lot of the band that was on that gig had just finished the first meatloaf tour, which included the two Kulik brothers. Right. Yeah. And Steve Buslow and, and... I probably yeah. to be able to remember the rest of them, but and it was Ellen Foley was um, she had also she was the opening act for Ian on on the shows that we did, and it was kind of like they they shared the band. It was a really kind of cool band. It was um, let's see how good my memory is. Uh, the drummer was a guy named Hilly Michaels who was in Sparks before mm-hmm. that. Um, bass player was Martin Briley who has done a lot. He, he's writ, written a lot of songs and, uh, as, you know, as his own artist, he had a song called You Ain't Worth the Salt in My Tears, which was a big hit back in the 80s, I think. And um, he was the bass player. The guitar player was a guy named Billy Cross who played with um, Bob Dylan at the time. And, um, you know, and Ellen was singing backgrounds for Ian and the band just backed up both both acts, the opening act and, and the, you know, and Ian. And so it was kind of a really fun musical thing, you know, that uh, David Johansson was there. And it it was all, it was like the Cleveland International was the company that was managing these, all of the same, all of these artists. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like, you know, their, their A-list guys kind of backing everybody up. And and so I, I I had the pleasure of being able to be a part of that for a couple of weeks. It was was a lot of fun, you know, but um, but, you know, that's where the where I started meeting people and, and really um, going into the city more and, and trying to get the next gig. And I also, at that point, had auditioned for um, the band that Bruce had with uh, Michael Bolton. Uh, it was a blackjack. Really? Oh. Yeah. It had, I, as a matter of fact, when I met Bruce for the, for the first time, which was actually the second time, you know, when I first started working with Kiss, he said, I know you from somewhere. And we started talking about it. And it, we figured out that he remembered me from the auditions. He goes, that's right. You were that really young kid who had come in and, you know, done the auditions. And it was down to me. And the, the guy who actually got the gig was Alan St. John that went on to play with Billy Squire. And so, um, you know, Sandy Gennaro was the drummer in the band. and uh, Jimmy Haslip and, and uh, Bolton. Goodness me. Yeah. So, you know, I was banging around. So I started playing, you know, around New York City a lot more. And I was, and then I found a band through the Village Voice, which was, you know, always running the classified ads or who was looking for musicians. And so I, I started playing with a band that was a, a, a they played at, uh, there was a club called Great Gildersleeves in, in Manhattan. That was a really cool live music club. And I joined this band called Falconetti, which was, really hot at that club and then you know there was so many other clubs in new york at the time that you could really do nothing but that you know we play every weekend we had shows and it was either 
Great Gildersleeves or there was a club called Tracks and Privates and Hurrahs. And there were so many clubs that had live music that we worked two shows a weekend, every, every weekend just about. And then we started doing gigs. We opened for the Kinks. Uh, we opened for lots of different people. We opened for the Scorpions. Like I think it was probably their first tour in the States uh, back in 77. Maybe by then it was 78, but yeah, so I played with those guys for a couple of years and you know, one thing leads to another and you meet people through, you know, the gigs and you meet other bands and it just took off from there. It's the importance of networking old school face to face and getting your name around and then you get a phone call. So let's jump forward to 1984 because one, one particular person that you wrote with is Cindy Lauper Mm -hmm. and Shebop. Right. And Cindy shares a history with Kiss in that she played the Coventry uh, for one of her earlier bands and opened for the all-female. Blue Angel. Yeah. So she also opened up for Isis, the all-female band. Um, How did your collaboration Mm -hmm. with Cindy um, come about? Because in the 80s, we couldn't escape her stuff, and it was just so fun, upbeat music that, uh, you know, I've got to ask you about it, even though we're talking rock and roll. Well, here's what happened. Okay, so we're back at the the Great Gillespie playing with Falcon Eddie. That band was courted. We were supposed to be signed to Tommy Mottola's company, and we were courted by all the... They never got signed. And then so I left that band and joined another band called Tom Dickey and the Desires, which was managed by Tommy Mottola, which did two albums on Mercury Records. Um, during the pre-production for the second record, one of the prospective producers that, was gonna, that they were looking at to produce the record was a guy named Steve Lunt. Uh, he was from a band called City Boy. Um, after the Tom Dickey thing broke up, Steve and I, even though he didn't end up producing the record, we ended up hitting it off, and we decided we were going to do some writing together. And he was managed by Dave Wolf, which ended up being Cindy's manager. Blue Angel had just basically lost their deal on Polygram, but you know, being on the New York club scene, I was a huge fan already of, of her and of the band, but really of her, because uh, she was so awesome live with that band. And so what happened was Steve said to me, um, you know, the, uh, Cindy is willing to sing the demos for us as we finished writing the songs. We, had, we were recording little four-track demos of them, and we had already written the music for Shebop. Um, the track was complete, including the whistle solo in the middle. Everything was done. We had the song titled, we, you know, because we would write these musical pieces and we would give them titles. Steve had a notebook full of titles that he would go to and we would look at them and like just pick an appropriate title for what the music sounded like, just so it would be easy to remember and, you know, reference in, in the future, you know, instead of saying, remember that idea that sounded like this? We gave him actual titles, and we picked the title Shebop, and he explained to me, he was British, and he explained to me that that was a, a, a slang term for masturbation. And so we just laughed about it, and we're, yeah, okay, that's a good title for the music, and we shelved it. And she had come over to sing uh, one or two of the other songs that we had, that we actually had finished, and she had just gotten her solo deal, and there was, you know, and, and she, she heard, she accidentally heard the music to Shebop, and said, wow, I really like that. Can, can I write the lyrics with you and I'll do it on my record? And we said, yeah, okay, sure. Blue Angel sold like 20,000 records. And in my mind, I said, wow, that'd be great. If she sold 20,000 records of a solo record, it'd be great. 
you know, to have a song on it. And so we just said, yeah, take it. Never expected the what happened to happen, but yeah, it was just it was just that type of thing, you know, the networking social thing that used to be such an amazing part of the business back then, which you know these days it it doesn't exist. But that was how everything got done back then because there really was no other way. And you know what a what a great part of your career to be something you know a part of something so special as that album is. You know it's it's still around today and important and fun. Yeah. Yeah, and I still get checks, you know, a couple of times a year, and it's it's unbelievable the what it what it turned into. That that's that's the important part of it. Yes, absolutely. Because, but I, you know, it's funny because at the time, you know, every time a band that I was in would fall apart, and you know, I would be looking for the next band to to work with to try to get a record deal, or whatever. I always did the wedding band stuff on weekends because, like I told you, my dad instilled that in me that. You know, you, you can't call yourself a professional musician if you can't earn a living being a musician. And you're not going to just sit around all week and wait for your rock band to do something. You're going to you're going to work if you're going to be a musician and you're not going to go to school for something else. This is how you even do it. And so that was just part of what I did. And, and you know, there, there's that gap between the time the the album for Cindy was finished. I was still going and doing these gigs on weekends and putting on my tuxedo and going and playing cover stuff and top 40 stuff. And when the album came out and the song took off, I was still playing in the wedding band because the money hadn't started coming in yet. You know, it takes nine months to a year before you start seeing royalties after the song is a hit. And so during that time period, I, I still had to put on my tuxedo and go play weddings. And, you know, people would come up to the bandstand and say, you guys know Shebop? And the singer would go, yeah, that guy over there wrote it. And they go, yeah, sure. <laughs> if he wrote it, what the hell is he doing here? You know, and that used to kill me, absolutely kill me. But uh, eventually this, the check started to come in and I was able to burn my tuxedo and, and stop doing <laughs> wedding gigs. <laughs> well, I, I think Gene Simmons would approve of your work ethic that you've just uh, recounted, you know, that it's important to work even when you're not working. So... Uh, yes. More power yes. to you to have been uh, brought up with that instilled in you. So let's right. get, let's get into 1987 and okay. Kisses Crazy Nights. Phil Ashley, of course, recorded the keyboard parts in the studio and had worked with Paul Stanley right. during the writing sessions. How does Gary Corbett enter Kisses Radar range, and you know how were you approached? Well, what happened was um, after I started getting my royalties, I, I went out and bought a bunch of gear of, uh, it was, I bought my first computer, which was a, you know, an Apple IIe computer. And cause that was just starting to be used to make music. And it was, I was always into the toys and, and Shebop was a result of us like experimenting with drum machines and doing things. So I, I took the money, the first check I got and bought my own four track and my own drum machine and stuff. And um, I started doing a lot of work in studios around Manhattan as a, as a programmer for people, you know, because at that point it was a new thing. And so when something like that is new, everybody wants to do it. And so that became the way in the eighties that records were done. There were no more drummers. It was all drum machines and stuff. And it took a while before there was a lot of people actually who knew how to do it. So I worked a lot because of it. And so I was involved in a bunch of these projects and we used to work at electric lady all the time and, uh, happened to walk out to the coffee machine and 
there's a guy standing there and we started talking and it was Phil and uh, I had expressed an interest. I, you know, I told him how I was getting a little tired of the programming thing because when you're programming like that, you're not playing with a band and you're not bouncing ideas off other musicians and being creative that way. And, you know, it's, it's fun and it's great to be the source of all the parts until you have a, a, a cease in your create, creative flow, you know, and then there's nobody else to pick up the slack. And so it was getting a little bit old to me to not have a band to play with because I grew up playing with other musicians my whole life. And that's really what I love doing. And so I told them that I was at a point where I was ready to hit the road and, and take a break from the studio. And that's, that's been something I've always had to do. I've always, that's, you know, if you look at the names on my resume, even style wise, it, it goes from one style to another because I'm, I'm always needing change like that. And so I told them that and we exchanged numbers and went back into our studios that we were both working in. And then about a week later, he called me up and he said, listen, he goes, I got myself in a bit of a jam and I, I could use your help if you're still interested in going on the road. I said, sure. He said, uh, I got myself uh, kind of double booked on two different tours and I would love for you to cover one of them for me. I said, sure. Who, you know, who are you playing with? And he said, Lou Graham from Foreigner. And I went, oh, that's great, man. Who am I going to play with? He goes, no. He goes, you're playing with Lou Graham. He goes, I'm going out <laughs> with Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger had just done his solo album and Phil had done that and he was going to go out on tour with Mick Jagger. And so I ended up getting the gig with Lou. And, uh, and then about a week later, he called me up again and he said, listen, <laughs> I, uh, you know, he told me he had just done the record with Kiss and that they thought about uh, actually wanting to take a keyboard player out live. And because of his relationship with Paul, they weren't really, they weren't going to be doing like cattle call auditions. They were basically trusting Phil's recommendation. And, uh, you know, all I basically had to do was go to a meeting at the office, which was Paul and Chris Lent. And we sat and talked for a few minutes and they said, okay, you're hired. And that was it. But yeah, it was Phil Ashley that recommended me. So, so what did the uh, interview entail? Do you have a passport and you're ready to go? Uh, or or was, there any, much. was there anything technical or, um, you know, personality wise that they wanted to vet you for? Yeah, it was more personality wise because from a musical standpoint, Paul really trusted Phil. You know, Phil was really involved in the, the demoing process of all the songs. And, you know, at that point, everybody else in the band had moved out to LA. And so for Paul, when it was time to write songs for the next Kiss record, he didn't have the guys in the band to lean on. So he had his friends in New York and he ended up doing it with Phil. Phil had a, a room that he kept at uh, Electric Lady Studios where, where he had his own personal little 12 track setup and, you know, and his computer and all that stuff. And so they ended up demoing all the songs there. And then when it came time for the record, they recorded, I think, a lot of it there with Ron Nevison and Phil played keyboards. And, you know, it was just that he was very connected to it. And, I, and Paul trusted his musical judgment, especially, I guess, when it came to keyboard players, the fact that he, you know, Paul really didn't know much about that end of it. And Phil did. And so... From the musical point, they really trusted his judgment. It was more about the personality. And I guess just to see that I wasn't some nut job or that, you know, that I fit into, you know, that I, I could possibly be a good hang or whatever. I was more about that than anything else. What was your initial impressions of Paul from that first meeting? 
Well, yeah, it's a little overwhelming walking into that office. I, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, I, I had been aware of them for obviously for a few years and, uh, they were huge and I didn't really, although I wasn't really a, a diehard Kiss fan, it's still, when you meet somebody of that magnitude, it's intimidating. But, you know, I guess it made it easier because it was just him and it wasn't the whole band. I, it would have been a lot, a lot harder if I walked into the room and it was all four of them and management and everybody else, then I would have probably, it probably would have been a lot more uncomfortable. But Paul, you know, Paul can be a very charming, personable person. So it, it wasn't uncomfortable at all. And, and uh, Chris Lent was, you know, he was there and he was very nice and, they did, it was it was great. It, the only uncomfortable moment was when when they finally said, "Okay, you know, you, you're hired." We started talking about the set list, and they asked me, they were they what they said was they weren't sure what the set list was going to be, so they would really like me to be familiar with everything. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that was more of a test than anything else. So when they asked me what albums I needed, because at that point it was still vinyl, and they said, "What albums do you need?" And I said, "All of them," and they kind of looked at me, but. You know, they handed me a few envelopes stuffed with albums. And, and I was actually leaving with Lou. We were going on tour over in Europe. And so I wasn't even going to be back in the country until like the second week of, of their rehearsals. So they were actually going to start the rehearsals without me. And I flew straight from the last gig with Lou in Munich, straight past New York, straight out to L.A. and, and then started with them and, and never even went home between tours and so my entire time on tour with with Lou in Germany I was listening to I, I transferred all the albums to cassettes and I had my auto reverse Walkman with my headphones and speakers that I traveled with and you know I slept with with it on continuous loop so that I could subliminally absorb it I listened to it with headphones as we traveled from one city to the other it was basically my background music for the entire European trip, but that's what I needed to do to really learn it all. So had, had you done musical rehearsals with Lou before this meeting with Kiss? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that side of things was all set up? Yeah, we had already done some shows with Lou in the States, and then although that tour didn't get to the, you know, didn't make it all the way through in the States, they had, what happened was that Lou's tour had started and Phil was going to do the first two weeks and then I was going to step in. And during the first two weeks of the tour, all of a sudden there was some stuff going on at the record company where they said, we're going to postpone the tour. So I never got to go out and do any of the shows in the States, but I did all the rehearsals and everything as an understudy with Phil. I'd go to rehearsal every day and just watch. But I also had a, a, a recording of the band running through the set minus the keyboards that once the band left at the end of the day, I would stay behind, crank that through the PA, and run through the show with my recorded version of the band. And so, you know, I was already, like, up to speed with Lou, and then they added, then they booked this European tour, so, you know, it was basically, I was finally going to get to do some shows. And so it was, I was really excited about it, because he was always somebody I, I, I idolized, and so, you know, that that part of it was a thrill. I, I was a huge uh, foreigner fan at that point and, you know, could even even remember a conversation when I was still doing the work up in the Catskills in the 80s when I was engaged to my wife. We were driving up for the summer listening to Foreigner 4 and 
having one of those conversations where it was like, if you could play with anybody in the world that you want, who would it be? And I pointed to the cassette deck and I went, it would be that guy. But, you know, of course it'll never happen because foreigner would have to break up and he'd have to know I existed and all that stuff. And that's never going to happen. So the Lou gig was actually for me at the time, like the gig of a lifetime. I was really thrilled to, to have it. And I love, you know, I really loved playing with him. It was a great band. He was still in great physical shape. And so, you know, his voice was still amazing. And, uh, I used to get the goosebumps every night with him. And he he played a really good set, did he, uh, for that tour? I mean, I, I was looking at some of the yeah. set list, and he's got Buddy Holly, The Beatles, Humble Pie, um, the, face, yeah. the Small Faces, all the stuff off the Ready or Not album. It, it looks like a really fun tour yeah. to have been a part of. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, like I said, it was a great band. You know, Bruce Turgan, who was like his right-hand guy in that situation had written all the stuff for for the radio night um, his brother ben was playing drums who's a great drummer and um yeah it was it was an awesome awesome gig to have it was just sad that it didn't there wasn't more of it you know i did get to play with him again in 2003 but he had already gone through his health issues and uh it wasn't uh, you know it was more it was hard for me to actually go and do it because i couldn't it really hurt me to see him in that condition. But I did, st- I, I ended up doing the second, his second solo record was, uh, I believe it was called long, hard look. We even did the small, one of the small faces songs that we did in the show. He ended up cutting on the second record. And I played on that. And, you know, I was there for the recording of the second record as well. Yeah. Tin, tin soldier, right? Yep. That's the one. Yeah. yeah I, I'm on by, that. I've got the, I've got the, actually got the album sitting right here on my desk. So, oh, wow. That was Eric Thorngren, right? That did that record? Um, yeah, pro- produced by, uh, yeah, Eric Thorngren. You're right. Uh, and Peter yeah. yeah, we recorded it at his house, in a loose house up in Katona, New York. He had a studio above his garage. It wasn't a typical garage. It was like a 10-car garage. Yeah, he was a muscle car collector. and So it was this huge square building on, on the property of his really nice estate kind of house. And uh, he had a full studio upstairs with a neve console and a two inch 24 track machine and you know and so i would drive up there and we would go play racquetball and then work on the record and have dinner with the family and and that was how that whole the second record was done it was all up at loose house but um yeah he he was it was great to work with him you know it's nice to get to work with with someone you idolize like that yeah, you know that, that's a great story. And spending, uh, I guess, spending your tour of Germany, uh, your prep work, you know, listening to the Kiss tapes. Um, were you in touch with them while you were on tour with Lou? Um, you know, any final words, basically, about the gig? I mean, from their perspective, wouldn't it have been difficult for them to be waiting for you while they're starting to get things going? And did they ever consider, well, you know, just going with someone else because of your availability? No, you know that what what they had told me was that it usually takes them a week or so to knock the rust off because of not playing together from since the last tour or, or, you know, the recording of the record, there was so much other stuff that needed to be addressed for the tour that the first week, you know, is kind of a get up and get everything running anyway. So they really wouldn't, I wouldn't really miss much. And as long as I came in prepared and know, you know, that I could get up to speed pretty quick, they, they were, you know, uh, confident that I would actually do my homework and be ready to go. And so they didn't really worry about it. I think they actually welcomed the fact that they got to, you know, get in their routine before I was there. So you fly directly from Germany to Los Angeles and 
you know, boom, there you are. Mm -hmm. Now you're rehearsing with Kiss. Were these the musical rehearsals or are they the full stage production rehearsals? Well, it, it was a little bit of both. Um, it, we were rehearsing at a, a rehearsal studio, uh, except that, I don't know if you remember the set for the Crazy Nights tour. It had that kind of semicircular ramp that went around the drum set towards yep. the backside of the stage. They had that part of the stage in the rehearsal room that we were in so that they can get used to being on it and running around and doing their thing. And that was the thing that really was the most impressive thing to me at the first day of rehearsal. So I get off the plane after, you know, flying from, from Germany and I, I get taken straight to, um, before I even got to check into a hotel, they took me straight to a TV studio where the band was taping a, a an episode of top of the pops because the record had just come out. Crazy nights was just released and, there was a single in the video and everything. So they, you know, top of the pops, which is that British TV show. They tried to do an American version of it that didn't last long, but you know, because in the eighties when MTV was so successful, everybody, every network tried to do something with their, you know, their own video shows. And so they were doing top of the pops. I, I got taken straight to the, to the TV studio. And that's when I first met Gene and Eric and Bruce, uh, you know, I walked in the dressing room as they were getting ready to go on. So they were in full stage gear at that point. And, you know, that, <laughs> that was how I met them. So it was, uh, it was, that, that was a, a fun, fun night. And then the, the next, the first rehearsal was the next day. And so I got to the rehearsal room and everybody was off in their own little corners. You know, Eric was in over on one end dealing with drum stuff with his drum tech. And Paul was dealing with whatever he was dealing with. And Gene was off dealing with, on the phone doing his business stuff and everything and it was very quiet and a very business-like environment and and then they said okay you guys ready to play and everybody kind of like you know walks up to the stage or puts on their instruments and count off the first song and from the downbeat of the first song it's a full-on kiss show and they were running and jumping and you know doing their move and i i just really floored me that they had that they could flip a switch like that and just all of a sudden it's a it's a kiss show going on in the room right in front of me <laughs> it was pretty very really impressive and that and that you know really showed me something about their talent for putting on a show and you know or you know they might not be the best musicians in the world but they as performers and entertainers which is also a, a talent that is very necessary you know is they were amazing at that and they they could they had a sense about that that you know, I've never seen anywhere else. Obviously, they've managed to sustain themselves as the uh, top, sh you know, rock shows of all time. So, you know, that wasn't by accident. And they worked real hard at it. And so it really made, you know, gave me a new respect for what they did. So when you properly meet them for the first time, I, I don't think we can call the Top of the Pops, uh, you know, introduction a, a proper meeting of them since they're about to go into basically work. You know, when you finally do have one-on-one -on -one, uh, with them, what are your initial impression of the band members in this setting? You know, uh, start with, uh, we've already talked a little about, about Paul, so let's start with Gene. Well, yeah, Gene, <laughs> you know, Gene can be a little intimidating. Uh, first thing he said as I walked into the dressing room, the Top of the Pops was, I want your jacket. <laughs> you know the way he is. I had bought this leather jacket over in Germany while I was in Germany, and it was really cool. I had buckles and all this stuff on, on you know. And so that was the icebreaker, you know. So of course that makes it, you know, it makes you relax a little bit because he's giving me a compliment. And 
you know, that I don't remember talking much to him at that point, but Bruce at that point, that's when he and I started talking and realizing that we kind of had met before and we had the whole conversation about blackjack and Eric, you know, and I hit it off immediately because he also grew up in Brooklyn, very similar, you know, background to me as far as, you know, we played at similar, same clubs growing up and a lot of, a lot of similarities between us. And, and to add to it, I didn't have a rental car. I was staying at the Hyatt on Sunset, and he was still living in New York. So, for the time that we rehearsed, he would he would rent these uh, like a, a suite at these you know uh, extended stay type hotel kind of things out there. And he did have a rental car. So the arrangement was that he would swing by and pick me up on the way to rehearsal every day and drop me off. So we had a lot of time at that point to kind of get to know each other, and we just hit it off. I mean, we just had so much in common that it. it that that clicked like instantly. So you're working these uh, these re- rehearsals. You know, was it always planned for you to be an offstage uh, perf- player for the tour? For that tour, yes, absolutely. It was always that was always the uh, and because Gene, to be honest with you, Gene never really wanted keyboards. Gene didn't like the keyboards. Gene didn't want the keyboards, and he let it be very well known. I I you know when <laughs> he. He used to tell me that we'd, we'd have these debates. He would tell me that keyboards were not a rock and roll instrument. <laughs> <laughs> and he meant this. <laughs> you know, forget about Jerry Lee Lewis. Or, you know, forget, keyboards were not a rock and roll instrument. And as a matter of fact, at soundcheck every day, whenever like the sound man would get through everybody and say, okay, Gary, can you give me a little bit of keys? As soon as I would start to play by myself, he would start ice skating around the stage. You know, because that's what keyboards were to him. You know, it was music for ice skaters. <laughs> but, you know, Gene is Gene, and you got to, you know. Those, one thing about being on tour with those guys is they, they're hilarious. They all have really sharp wits and heavy sarcasm. But, you know, we were all New Yorkers, so I got it, you know. And I and I could dish it out just as well. And so, you know, it... it it was constant. There was always somebody busting somebody's balls. And, you know, it, it actually, it, and I think that was more important in when we, our initial meeting, you know, just to make sure that I was a person that could deal with it. You know, because there were a lot of guys that would come on, like when it came time for a tour, you know, you get these crew guys that grew up being Kiss fans and they couldn't do their jobs if Gene or Paul were, were nearby because they were so enamored that, there's, there's, they're over there. You know, it's like a, like a fan. We had a pyro guy that Gene fired in the middle of a show while he was on stage. He, he looked over at the guy and said, you're fired, get away from the pyro rig and give the button to my bass tech, Dave Rule. And Dave Rule had to trigger the explosion for the rest of that night until they could replace the guy. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, fortunately, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't do that. Like, I, you know, I, I was fine. So we... <laughs> I used to laugh, you know, it was kind of funny. And we, and they did throw picks at me and we, I pick them back. And I it got to the point where I had my own bags of guitar picks just as ammo to throw back at them. You know? <laughs> and it was, it was fun. But Gene's got really good aim with the pick. He could hit the sand guy from the stage. It was amazing. Oh, you know, they, they, they've turned it into an art form, what they do with picks. <laughs> they really, really did. 
So did you have any input on the sweetening and where the keyboards were going to be used in the show? Or did they or did Paul and the rest of the band have a very clear vision of exactly where you were going to feature and how you were going to feature? No, they they had no idea at all. And it really wasn't. I don't think they really gave it much thought at that point. I think all that was important to them was the stuff that was on the Crazy Nights album that I covered the keyboard parts that were actually keyboard parts on, on that record. Um, anything else was just, you know, I, for me, I had the choice. I could either play those six songs and, you know, then have nothing else to do, or I could figure out something to do. And I played on every song of the show. And, uh, as time went on, in addition to playing the parts I played, which were basically, were doubling everything that Gene and Paul were playing, you know, and because when, you know, when they're running around doing the show, the, the playing could suffer a little bit, maybe, you know, because of the, because of the running around and stuff. And so I would play the stuff that the rhythm guitar part was playing and also pumping the bass stuff so that if, if he didn't hit every note, it wasn't apparent. And, and, and then as time went on, I, you know, samplers became a thing. And then I also started doing background vocal samples in probably half of the songs in, in the set and some sound effects. You know, there were nights when the fire marshal would show up in the afternoon to watch a pyro run through and then and say, well, you can't use the explosions, but you could use the colorful stuff. You know, and Gene would have that spot in his bass solo where he fired the rockets from his guitar up to, at the PA cabinet and the cabinet would explode and it would be a loud explosion that would go with it from the pyro guy. But in these buildings where they couldn't use the concussion stuff, I would have these samples of explosions that became part of my job to trigger, you know, when, when, when they were supposed to be going off, you know. And so, you know, he would do his bass solo and go over to the side of the stage and point his bass up, hit the button, the rocket would fly up, and then I'd hit the key that triggered the explosion. You know, or the the siren in Firehouse was another thing that I did. Or the uh, the talking in the middle of God of Thunder was something that came from the keyboards. And, you know, it, it grew as time went on, what I did. But but I always played every every song from from day one so you're really you're really thickening the sound for the band aren't you you're you're helping them yeah. mask yeah. everything you're you're just making it yeah. richer fuller um what, what's the core equipment that gary corbett's using in october november 1987 what 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 was your equipment that you took out on tour well at that point um on that record they used the roland jx10 keyboard it was like the Ju- it was in the jupiter line which was a very popular analog synth very typical 80s sound and it was the sound like the set the keyboard sound like in uh, reason to live and bruce uh, for the for the show because that song the keyboards were so predominant and i guess they felt if the keyboards were there and nobody on stage was playing them it would be apparent that there was somebody else so for the first half of the song, they actually had a keyboard up on stage that Bruce played. It was a, you know, also a Roland JX-10. And he would start the song. We both played together. But then like halfway through, he'd swing the guitar around and walk away from the keyboard. And of course, the keyboards continued. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> but because of that, they bought the two JX-10s. So they had, the, you know, the one that I used and the one that he used. 
But for the rest of my rig, um, I had a Korg EX8000, which was a similar, it was basically Korg's version of that type of synth. And I would MIDI them together, and you know, which means that I would play the Roland JX, but also hear the sound of the Korg layered with everything I played on there. So it basically doubled it to be even thicker and so between I, so what it basically what ended up becoming my signature sound if, if you will was a combination of those two synths and you know I might on, on one song I might dial in a little bit more of a gritty sound on one to, so it wasn't as smooth and you know so it wasn't that typical sound and it blended better with the guitars and you know and that's what I was going for especially on the songs that didn't have keyboards were sounds that were guitar-ish and just basically filled the the uh, sonic uh, spectrum, you know, and just kind of, you couldn't distinguish from the guitars. That was one of the things I noticed this morning. I was listening to the Schweinfurt Germany uh, mm-hmm. uh, DVD and right into Deuce, you can, you can hear you, you know, doubling the guitar chords, you know, through, yeah. throughout the song, you know, and, and it just sounds lush. It sounds thick. It sounds, you know, perfect for an outdoor, uh, particularly environment to really thicken yeah. that up where they may have lost the definition with all, all the open air. Right. And, you know, and the sound, basically I became like a, uh, an expensive effects unit. And it was the kind of thing where you only noticed it when it stopped. You wouldn't, it wouldn't stick out so much as much as just fill everything in. But, it was more apparent if I stopped playing that something just fell out, but you couldn't put your finger on what it was, maybe, you know, that kind of stuff. And that, was, and that was always how I approached it, you know, which was different than probably most keyboard players because most keyboard players are very technically oriented and schooled. And, and then when it comes time to playing with a band, they always want to stand out and show what they learned, you know. And I never cared about being noticed. I just wanted to make the band sound better and you know do what i was hired to do did you work with eric at all on you know his drum solo involved a lot of synth at that yes. time um did, did you yes. work with him and collaborate and help him all the time yeah he he wasn't a very technical guy he did have when i when i got there he had already had the simmons pads that were all around the top of his drum kit and he had a, a synth module in a, in a rack that those pads were connected to and each one of those pads would be a, a different note. So if the song was in the key of E, at the last note of the song, when you know the last note's ringing out and everybody's bashing out, he would also, you know, embellish it by hitting that pad and, and adding a low, you know, low E to fill it out even more. So he was already doing that when I got there. But then he, uh, you know, when, when I started doing the sampler stuff with the vocals and the sound effects and everything. It became, he, he got interested in it and bought a sampler and we would do that for his drum solos. Uh, you know, like I remember doing, going and sampling all the, these different Metallica guitar riffs that he would trigger uh, from, you know, he would hit the drum pad and it would start a guitar riff that would loop around once it played through and then he would play the drums to it. You know, but we would always sample the guitar. Like if it was a song that started with just the guitar on, on the Metallica record, we would sample the four bars or the two bars of the riff of just the guitar, not the, ever a full band thing. And we had all these different little snippets across each one of those pads. And, and you know, he would incorporate it into his solo. And so we did. St- I helped him do all that stuff. 
so what are you what are you doing on stage while he's doing his solo? I I, I believe it was uh, right before No No No, you know, and then Bruce would come back on stage and they'd go into that song. Um, right. Are are you still uh you know at your keyboards triggering stuff while he's doing the drum solo or is it break time no. for you? Break time. <laughs> Definitely break time. And and during the solos um, and break time, you know, what's going on backstage? Are, are you any of the band members talking about what's going on in the show or is it catch your breath and just relax moments, you know, refocus? Well, it, it depends on which tour, you know, uh, by, by the Hot in the Shade tour, I had, um, they had thought enough about my placement to actually build something as part of the stage to, to actually hide me. On, on the Crazy Nights tour, when I first started working with them, although they didn't want me on stage and they really didn't want people to know I was there, there really was no place to put me where they could be guaranteed that nobody would see me. And so typically I would be on the floor behind the uh, stage left PA stack, which meant that, you know, people on the sides could see me and knew I was there, but it, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't visible to the, the main audience. But once, you know, on the Hot in the Shade tour, they actually built something we used to refer to as the condo, <laughs> which was off on Gene's side of the stage. And it housed my keyboard rig and also Gene's bass rig and his bass tech would be in there. And it was a little ramp that came down from the right side of the stage. It was only like a three foot ramp that came into the condo from the stage. So, you know, I had the view right across the stage from the side of the stage, but I, there was curtain, you know, uh, opaque curtains. It was a pipe and drape type thing. So, you know, I was kind of covered at that point, which then meant that that that, that became a, a little bit of a party room during the show as well, because, you know, the, the fun thing about touring with those guys was every band that came out in the 80s opened for the band at one time or another. And they were all huge Kiss fans, you know, guys like Slaughter and Faster Pussycat and Danger Danger. And they would be with us for, you know, months at a time. And so, you know, you become friends with them. And, you know, it was a very common thing for Mark Slaughter to be standing next to me while I played and leaning in and singing backgrounds with me and, you know, doing stuff just because he was like a fan, like a kid at that point. So my condo became kind of a, a meeting spot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it actually was good once I had that little hiding spot because it, it allowed us to do a lot more fun things oh mark salata he's an awesome guy um yeah let's let's get get back to november of uh 87 okay. here six songs from crazy nights debut at the first show in um jacksonville mississippi mm-hmm. you know, when your walls come down bang bang you hell or high water no 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 reason to live in crazy crazy nights were those the only songs mm-hmm from the album that uh, you rehearsed or did that change during the, re- the, the rehearsals um, and, and any other songs get dropped off? There might've been one or two others that were rehearsed, but never really sounded great. Or, the, you know, there was something about them that they didn't like doing or, you know, they didn't feel it was necessary that it wasn't going to be a single, you know, like I said, I don't think, you know, that, that album was more of a Paul album than a Gene album. And I don't really, you know, Gene was so busy at that time pursuing his acting and he had the record company. And I don't think his attention in the off season was really the band. And so when it came time to write the new record, that kind of fell more on Paul's shoulders. And that being the case, he couldn't really 
complain when he didn't like stuff so much because then you should have submitted your own. So he did have a couple. I think No, No, No was one of his. Uh, there was a couple that were Gene songs, but the, the you know, the, the um, what do you call it? The, the main vibe of that record was definitely a Paul record. Oh, a- absolutely. And, you know, none of them will deny it. It was Ron Nevison was Paul's choice and, and all of that. Were there any of those crazy night songs that you could choose as a favorite that you really enjoyed performing every night um and that immediately struck you as your sort of song um no because you know to be honest with you i even though i was i'm a keyboard player i'm a i i like the heavier stuff and and that's probably why i was able to do what i did for them because although i'm a keyboard player i i understand gene's feelings about keyboards although i might not agree with them I know what he what he's feeling, and so I was very careful in my approach to never step outside of that. But I understood that, and and I did appreciate the heavier stuff more. And and for me, songs like Rock and Roll All Night and stuff like that were the songs that I was really familiar with from Kiss before I ever worked with them. So those were the songs that I kind of look forward to. Well, that answers the next question as well, you know, which 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 was, you know, of the classic stuff, you know, what was uh, kind of in your wheelhouse because, you know, Love Gun, Cold Gin. Um, Strutter. Strutter was Strutter, fun. Yeah, Strutter um, comes in at the end of the tour. Black Diamond. Yeah. Uh, Heavens on Fire was fun, you know. And I used to sing a lot of backgrounds too. So, you know, that was fun for me to be a part of the, the background vocals. So, you know... It wasn't so much that I, I never really cared because I always knew that if the keyboard stuck out too much or they were not ever supposed to be a featured instrument in that band. So there was no point in trying or really caring about that aspect of to show off my keyboard abilities because it wasn't really about that. And, you know, and I was fine with it. Uh, that didn't bother me. It, you know, it's a little hard to um, not be on stage when you're playing, when you're part of such a big show and, you know, and then again, there are times like, you know, in the Monsters of Rock tour, when people are throwing piss bottles from the audience at Donington, where I was kind of happy to be behind the PA, you know. There are certainly <laughs> or, times or when, it ha- when it has, its, yeah, when it has its uh, benefits. So in, in the mm-hmm. American tour early on, I mean, the audiences were pretty low. Um, you know, that, that yes. that's just well documented mid 60 percent and lower in some cases. Shows in Lake Charles, Louisiana canceled on the tour. What was the mood of the band yeah. as they set out on this tour and, and started seeing these uh, results? Yeah, it was dark. It wasn't, you know. The sarcasm kind of turned to that stuff. Like, we, for instance, you know, we'd be in the dressing room and Paul would say something like, we should order a pizza for the audience or something like that, you know. Or, you know, and they'd make a joke about it. But, you know, at the same time, they were also figuring out ways to, like, hang curtains to block the empty seats because they didn't want a half-empty arena. You know, that's a really ugly thing to see from the stage. And so... You know, I guess for the sake of making it still look like a full room, they would add curtains to the to the room to close it down a little bit. And, you know, and plus at that point, you know, then then the expense of the tour became an issue. And and I actually was let go for, for a, a time because of the they decided that the tour wasn't doing well enough that they could afford me anymore. Of all things. And so. They actually sent me home. What did you do? What did you do in the interim? <laughs> well, there wasn't. I I didn't get any warning about it. To be honest, I, it was kind of 
we had a, we had a break at Christmas time. I was home in New York and doing my Christmas shopping, and I was in Greenwich Village, so I actually stopped by uh, Electric Lady Studios to say hello to all the people there, and I was doing my thing, you know, Christmas the next day, great, and then, and then we were supposed to be leaving again the day after Christmas. And so I get to Electric Lady, and you know, that was before cell phones or emails or anything like that. So when I got to the studio, I called my house. Oh, no, I got to the studio, and a, a call came in to the studio for me, and it was Paul. And I picked up the phone and, you know, I was in the, in the lounge with a couple of my friends and, and, uh, and I answered the phone and I said, Hey Paul, how's it going? I'm really sorry, man. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you're sorry? Oh, you didn't speak to Gene yet? No, I didn't speak to Gene yet. Oh, um, well, we really can't afford to, you know, and it went from there. And I saw basically I, w- I was now out of work. And so, it was so last minute that there was, wasn't even time to get my gear off the truck. And my gear went back out on the road without me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a very happy, happy time. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and I wasn't very happy with them, uh, as you could imagine. But then what happened was they went back out on the road. And after like one or two shows, they called me up and said, listen, and we really need you to come back out on the road. I think what we'd like to do is figure out the shows that are important and bring you back out and, you know, have you come out for some shows and go home for the ones that don't matter and all that stuff. And so I ended up going back out and I ended up doing about probably another three or four weeks of that tour. And then it ended for me because they couldn't afford it anymore. Were you around when they shot the uh, Turn on the Night video in Worcester? No. I don't think so. so. So you hadn't rejoined at that point. What about, you know, uh, during when you are out on the road with them, you know, was there any fun shenanigans on the road in the States? Not so much that tour. At that point, I, although I went back out, I was not really uh, as jovial and happy to be around them as I was <laughs> because of circumstances. And, you know, and as a matter of fact, there was even a point when I did go back out where they decided that as part of the thing to save money, I no longer traveled with them, but was going to ride the crew bus <laughs> okay. as a crew member. And yeah, so I like, needless to say, I was not really in a joking mood when it came to those guys. And so um, the, the riding the crew, now, get, don't get me wrong, I spent more time on the crew bus at the venues during the day than I did anywhere else because those guys were the guys that were having all the fun. And, you know, I, I can hang out on the crew bus and, and smoke cigarettes and not worry about that. You know, it would just be myself more with those guys. And a lot of them were friends of mine from New York City that I knew from other things. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with the crew. But the difference between being hired under the uh, arrangements that I traveled and was treated as a band member to all of a sudden now my day would start instead of being in a room at the four seasons, my day would start on a crew bus at, at a venue with everybody else inside working and putting the show up. And I would just sit there until the band showed up to sound check with nothing to do, you know? And so I think I did that one night <laughs> and I think they could see that that was not going to work. And so they, I ended up going back 
and traveling with the band again. But but I only ended up staying for like another couple of weeks before things completely fell apart. And so it really wasn't a lot of fun uh, at that point. Yeah. So that was my last. So Nassau Coliseum was my last show. And I left there that night without saying goodnight to anybody or anything. I just basically left, pulled, took my gear and went home because I, I was still living in New York. So my wife came to the show and uh, at the end of the show, we loaded up the gear that was mine. Like I said, I told you the, 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 the Roland keyboard that I was using belonged to them. So that stayed behind, but I took all my stuff and went home and I didn't uh, hear from them again until the Monsters of Rock tour was a possibility. And then they called me up and asked me if I wanted to do it. And at first I said no, because of, you know, because of everything that had happened. And um, we basically came to an agreement that if, um, that I would go back, but that I would travel as a band member, like we originally agreed. And if the band was on the road, then I was going to be on the road and I wasn't going to be flying back, you know, doing the back and forth thing. And everybody agreed. And, and then from there, for the next five years, everything was always great. So, you know, I guess with like, like a lot of things, you have to get that. You got to stand up a little for yourself and show people that you don't want to be stepped on and you get a little bit more respect and then you can get back to being who you are with each other, you know? So in that interim between, uh, you know, leaving the tour, after, that would have been in January, um, it means you didn't go to Japan with them. No, I didn't. So what, we fast forward to, I guess, June. They're doing rehearsals at SIR in New York, getting ready to do um, a couple of gigs in July. Did you do the, uh, the right. North Swansea, New Hampshire show with them and the club gigs? Yeah, the July 4th thing? Yeah, July 4th at Cheshire yeah. Fairgrounds. So, so you were back by then, and you'd uh, done the rehearsals yes. with them at the end of June, and the set list had yes. changed. You know, Strutter and Deuce come back in. It's you know starting to skew back towards the the uh, the classics. You know, and yes. a lot of the Crazy Night stuff is now out of the set. All you're left with is I think Crazy Crazy Nights and Bang Bang You and No No No. You know, ever uh, even right. Reason to Live's gone. Um, what was the mood of the band at this point and, you know, their, their reaction to you, you've stood up for yourself and, you know, you've agreed to do the monsters of rock stuff and all the August warmups. Um, mm -hmm. Did it strengthen your relationship in the sense that you had confronted them about, you know, not being happy about arrangements and being, yes. you know, moving forward from there? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, um, I never had another problem with Gene. And I never had another, you know, there was never any of that stuff of, you know, I, I don't even know how to put it. But, yeah, no, I really, after that, like I said, all the way to the time we, I stopped working with them, I never had another issue like that with them. And it was awesome. So how were those club gigs then, from your perspective, the Ritz uh, in New York <laughs> and uh, the Marquee in London, you know, a couple of days later? What were those like to play in with, uh, with a band like oh, Kiss? great. It was fun. I, I, that's that's a large part. See, so what happens now, because of the trip to Europe, I went out and bought a, uh, at the time, well, what, no, what, hey, wait, I go back a step further. For that July 4th gig, my keyboard tech, Tony Bird, had bought uh, a, one of those handheld 8mm video cameras, which were brand new at the time. And so at that 4th of July gig, I ended up borrowing his camera 
and we walked around the the venue filming and basically we made a really funny video backstage and all of this stuff. So when it came time to go to Europe, I said, you know what? I got to get my own video camera for this trip. And so I, the day before we left, I went and bought my own eight millimeter video camera. And so I have all of that stuff. I have the marquee club uh, on camera. I have all the Donington stuff. And I, I used to, it was a new toy. So I would take it everywhere with me, including on stage or, or, you know, on the side of the stage and I would hold it with one hand while I played or set it down on the rack next to my keyboard and leave it on while I played and walk around and film Eric during his drum solo. And, you know, I have all that stuff. I, the, the marquee club it was mayhem and I have all the backstage stuff and, you know, from the, from the stage filming the audience and they're like sardines in that place. And it was so cool because that's such a classic, you know, famous club that, to, to be there and have it be so packed in such an event was, was really cool. And then, of course, a couple amazing. of days later, you're playing in front of 100,000 people at the Monsters of Rock Festival at Donington. Right. Uh, what, yeah. was, what was that yeah. like for you? I, I guess, would that have been the biggest audience you'd ever been in front of at that, t- uh, at that yes. time? Yes. Yeah, it was. It was huge. It was unbelievable. What was that? You mentioned the throwing of the bottles of, you know, piss and everything, yeah. which is a very British thing. As uh, I don't know if you've ever seen yeah. Dee Snyder talk about them throwing crap up on stage yeah. while Twisted Sister performed at one. But uh, what was that like? It just just give us a quick overview of the Monsters of Rock experience in England. Well, it was huge, and you know, we had I spent a lot of time at the site because the day before Eric and I had gone down because he had to do something with his drums and. We were just the that's who I hung out with all the time when we were on the road because Jean and Paul didn't come out much. Bruce was newly engaged and she was with him at that time on the road. And so, you know, he and I were to Eric and I would be together all the time. And, you know, so uh, I have all my footage of that trip where me and in, in back, of, you know, behind the camera with Eric as the focus. And we have, you know, go to Hyde Park or the second day we went down to the site of the, of Donington. And then I, the next day is the show and I have all the backstage stuff. Cause Paul was dating Samantha Fox at the time. And I, I just filmed everything. And, uh, it was, it was unbelievable. But the day of the show there, it had rained, um, the day before. And the, the site was really like a mud fest. And earlier in the day, two people got trampled to death during guns and roses set. And so, you know, it was a little bit of weird stuff going on. But, by, but once we went on stage, it was basically forgotten about. But it was it was quite a large mass of people that they didn't really do anything for, uh, from a safety standpoint. They, there were no barricades. It was one large mass of people where, you know, in today's day and age, they would never allow a crowd that size to be one large crowd they they would have to separate it with you know multiple fences or whatever to keep it from being such a lot because when they start surging you know when the band comes on stage i i remember like motioning to security people to and pointing at people in front to pull them out that you know they had to be pulled over the barricade because they're getting crushed by by the people behind them and there's nothing anybody could do about it and like I said, during Guns N' Roses set, two people unfortunately slipped in the mud 
and got trampled to death during during the during the show. And it was just it was like pandemonium. I mean, it was, you know, from a from the standpoint of being a, a, a musician on stage in front of an audience like that, it was incredible. Not you know, like it was the biggest audience I ever played in front of. Probably still is. And uh, you ended up on the news as well on this. You know, it wasn't just the two heavy metal fans. <laughs> yes. um, didn't didn't you and Eric uh, get up to something? Yes, Eric and I went. Like I said, we went down the day before. Guns N' Roses, who had, you know, while we were in L.A. rehearsing for the uh, for the tour, for the Crazy Nights tour, was was when uh, um, Welcome to the Jungle had just come out like as an underground hit, and the L.A. clubs, like on the Strip, were it, it, every time that song came on, the dance floor immediately was packed, and people loved it, and you know we were fans of it, we you know, bought the record and everything, so the, Eric and I were down at the uh, site the day before and they were sound checking that afternoon and so Eric and I walked out in, into the field, into the center of the field and sat down on the grass and they were playing and I was filming with my video camera and while they were playing Eric noticed that there were two guys that were crew guys on the side of the stage and they were pointing at us and so Eric said I don't think they want you filming. You better turn off your camera. So I wasn't going to turn off my camera, but I, I acted like I did. And I just, just put it down on the ground next to me and I kept it running and nothing was ever said. And then when we got back to the hotel that night, I, I walked in my room and the phone rings and it was Paul. And he said, uh, I saw you guys, you guys made the news. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, they, when Guns N' Roses were playing, the, the reporter was standing on the side of the stage and they pointed out at you and Eric sitting there in the middle of the field by yourselves. And the, the reporter said, well, Guns N' Roses played to a very small audience. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's what the guy was pointing at us about. It wasn't about the fact that I was filming. <laughs> oh, that, that's so, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, cause that was such a huge, you know, the following day is 120,000 people. And uh, at this point, there's only two people dead in the center of the grass <laughs> nobody else so I, I imagine it probably looked pretty funny you know we're sitting down on the ground like we're part of the audience <laughs> and so yeah so we made the news i never got to see the news report but paul made sure he told us about it a week later you're in schweinfurt uh and that's notable for being a pro shot for tv where you end up on uh, mm -hmm. on your you show up on camera right from the first song yes. you, you're where you're supposed to be you're stage left under scaffolding with tarp around you but i guess the camera crew yes. weren't told to not film you and you know at the right at the beginning of deuce <laughs> we just see your hands and then later on you know they they come up to you and you're mugging for the camera um yeah. <laughs> any any response to that was this was that kind of like one of those moments of sweet justice to a certain extent that you've been off stage all these times and now here you are on a TV broadcast and you're getting to yes. basically be one of the band members. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because I, you know, I didn't encourage the guys to come over, and so they couldn't hold me responsible and get mad at me. They were not happy about it, um, and it was kind of funny to me that 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 kind of stuff bothered them, you know? If, if fan, fan magazines, you know, especially in Europe, you know, every country has a Kiss Army branch and every one of them had a magazine. And, 
you know, after 20 years of a band's existence or whatever it was at that point, to put out a monthly magazine and have content, you know, they sometimes they go a few degrees of separation and, and you know, interview Peter Chris's mailman or, you know, whoever, whoever had a connection to the band just to be able to put out a magazine. So needless to say, it started getting to the point where they wanted to interview me. And it became a problem to them that I was getting that much attention, which, you know, I mean, I, there was no chance I was going to steal any spotlight from anybody, but they just didn't want me to have that much attention. Yeah, it's always a matter that, you know, the, the focus is, you know, in KISS, Gina, Gina and Paul are the focus of the band uh, to this day. Yes. So that that simply yes. is how it is and how it became. So, you know, that that's neither right or wrong, you know, so. Yeah. It's their band. They do what they want. Um, just uh, wrapping up the Monsters of Rock. Uh, you're on tour with mm-hmm. Iron Maiden, Daily Roth, uh, Anthrax, Testament of Great White. Did you interact with any of these bands, uh, or was it just very businessman-like that each one of these bands, um, I, I would think Iron Maiden and other, other pros, just come out there and do their thing and not really hanging around? Or, or, or was there interaction between uh, at least yourself and anyone else? Well... Yeah, there wasn't much. Um, you know, those shows were so huge and the sites were so huge and the backstage areas were so separate from everybody's trailers were so far apart. And so there really wasn't much, uh, time, you know, place for that. But there was some, I mean, you know, Anthrax had been an opening act, uh, although it was after I had left the Crazy Nights tour, they became the opening act. And Eric was a huge Anthrax fan. And so the shows that they were on, like I, when I went through my videotapes recently from that backstage thing, you know, there's a whole piece where we're all sitting there with Frankie and, and Danny and uh, Joey and, you know, and Eric and, and everybody's, you know, goofing off from stuff. But as far as like hanging with Iron Maiden, I don't think I, aside from Nico, Nico, um, who was also a friend with Eric. So, you know, it was basically anybody that I hung out with was because I was friends and hanging with Eric because I was new to that group of people. And so, you know, but he had been around for 10, 11 years, 10 years at that point. And so, you know, he was a fan of, of Iron Maiden. And so, you know, and everybody loved Eric. And so, you know, he had friends. And so, that was the, the, where the socializing came from, for me, you know, with, with the, the, the other bands. But I can't remember really talking much to, like, David Lee Roth guys. Maybe, you know, Brett Tuggle and I talked a little bit. And Greg Bissonette was a really nice guy. And um, at, at that point, it was still Steve Vai. So later on, he, when he had Joe Holmes, we had become good friends. We, we did a tour together when I was with Cinderella. But, yeah, with David Lee Roth's band at that point, we didn't, I don't remember ever saying two words to them or, um, Iron Maiden was the headliner on the monsters tour. So they were even more isolated than the kiss guys were. And so, you know, there was really no opportunities to, to interact with them. So kiss did some solo shows. Um, I, I'm not going to dig into every single one of these, but I did want to ask you particularly about Iceland. And <laughs> Reykjavik, Reykjavik. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. do you recall of that gig? Because that, looking at the venue, it looks basically like a glorified barn. Um, yeah. Is that the one that looks like a, an indoor tennis court, like a big long garage, basically? Yeah. I, the only pictures I've seen of it, it has dirt on the floor. I guess without the dirt, yes. it might have uh, looked that way. Yeah. It was like it looked like a like a one of those steel buildings, you know, those temporary kind of metal buildings. 
I remember what I remember about that gig was how how strange the terrain of Iceland itself was, and how it it really looked like you were on the surface of the moon because it was just the weirdest looking rock, and that's all you could see for as far as you could see, except for the road that we were on, you know, and driving and you driving and you and you see nothing but this weird stuff, and then all of a sudden in the middle of nowhere there's a hard rock cafe and then there's nothing for miles again. And, and then we pull up and we're driving down the road that leads into the venue and we're going, no, that's not the place. And I remember that at the, at that gig, it was so strange because I'd never seen this before, but because of the climate inside, as opposed to outside, <laughs> there was literally a cloud that formed inside the building above the audience because of the heat and the cold and the whatever it takes to make a cloud. <laughs> but there was literally a cloud inside the building floating over the audience, which looked really, really strange. And it was a really, I, I remember that my um, keyboard rigs main power supply blew up at that gig because the power was not stable. And yeah, it was, that was a strange one. <laughs> Did did the band do the did the band do the full set for the Icelandic folk or or was it like yeah. a scale back show? No, they they never would do that, you know, and and they they would never scale the show down if there was less people, or you know, do less of a show because for them, you know, the show is what Kiss is about, and so they would never um, do anything other than one hundred and ten percent for the for the audience. One of the best stories I've heard from this tour, um, and it may not be the best for you personally, um, and I'll call you Pusher Man now, is Amsterdam. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's the videotape that I'm looking to find because I have that on my – I have about 45 minutes of Eric in my I, I, I think his family would certainly like that footage, wouldn't they? <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, Loretta, when you know, when we were talking a few months back, when she was looking to buy that stuff from me, um, she, you know, she wasn't sure if she wanted to see that stuff, you know, but she kept wanting me to find it, but she wasn't sure, you know, and I, and I assured her it was there was nothing, you know, bad about it, you know. The fact is, the guy had never done anything else in his life. He had never tried smoking. He had never tried any drugs of any kind. He occasionally liked a glass of wine. And what happened was the band took away his drum solo for the Monsters of Rock shows because they were not the and, they, and their reasoning was they were not the headliners. They didn't have the full time slot to do the full Kiss show. And that was one of the things that had to be sacrificed. But after the Monster shows were over and we continued on and we did Paris and we did all the rest of the shows that we did, Eric completely expected the drum solo to be put back into the show. And he was working it up in his head or, you know, and, and getting ready for that and looking forward to it because that was a really big deal to him. And he was told that um, they weren't going to put the, the drum solo back in the show once we were on our own, regardless. And he was really bummed out about it. And that's where, when we ended up in Amsterdam. And, you know, because of the nature of the shows, the monster shows were always like either a Saturday or a Sunday. And so wherever we played, we would get there and we'd have a whole weekday, which was very unlike any other tour. You know, usually you don't get to see the town you're in other than the, the venue and that's it. But on these shows, because you had the whole week in between, 
we we had you know the whole week in Amsterdam, and so he was really bummed out. My sister was living in Switzerland, and so when I originally got the tour booked, I I wasn't using my head, and I I wasn't thinking. So after Amsterdam, we went to Italy, I believe, and so my sister said, "Why don't you come and spend a couple of days in Switzerland with me?" So. I looked at the schedule. I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to be in Amsterdam for a week. I'm going to, I'll stay like three or four days and then I'll fly to Switzerland and then I'll meet back up with everybody in Italy. And so <laughs> Eric was really upset and pissed off about the drum solo. And he comes to me and he says, I want to get high. And, you know, and I'm a smoker and I was, you know, fully taking advantage of the things Amsterdam had to offer. And um, so I, I, are you sure? You know, you want to do it? Yeah, I want to do it. So we went to the coffee shop and he ordered a couple of bonbons that were made with weed and he, he ate them and whatever and, and didn't feel anything. As a lot of people do the first time they smoke, you know, sometimes it doesn't affect you at all. And so he was kind of disappointed. So the next day, I get a phone call from Bruce who said to me, he said, I found a, a coffee shop that's not the tourist place, but the place where the locals go. And they make some, they call them space cakes at the time. They make some space <laughs> cakes that are really strong and really unbelievable. So when I saw Eric, I said, hey, you know, Bruce told me about this place. And if you still want to try it, you know, you, if we go there, you should feel something. <laughs> yeah, so he, so he agreed. And we went to the to the coffee shop, and he uh, he he ate a bunch, and we smoked some. I rolled this big spliff with hash in it, and you know, and he was pulling it out of my hand, taking hits, and eating brownies and all kinds of crap. And and then we left, and we started walking around the canals, and and there was this little outdoor cafe, and we ran into the rest of the band, and. And it was starting to hit him. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, he's like, getting, he started getting very paranoid and very like, you know, agitated. Cause he, yeah. Cause he was very insecure anyway, especially around Gene and Paul. And he was mad at them and he didn't want to be around them. And so he said to me, I, I got to get out of here. Let's go back to the hotel. So we go back to my hotel and we get back to my room and he started to freak out a little bit. Uh, he couldn't breathe. He was he was he was going to die because he forgot how to breathe. And you know, so I called up Bruce and I called up Night Bob, who was our sound guy, and I said, "Guys, we got to come over and give me a hand here." <laughs> and it looks like one of those bad seventies don't do drugs movies because <laughs> you know I got the music cranking on my CD player and the the pile of weed on the table and. You know, and, and I'm turning the camera sideways and doing all these strange zoom-ins and all this weird stuff. And then I would pan over to the chair where Eric was, like, sitting frozen, and he'd have this strange look on his face, and he would say these weird things. It's just a hilarious bunch of footage. <laughs> i got to find it. But, uh, you know, and that went on for hours. I was like, dude, you know, maybe if you just close your eyes for a little while and take, lay down on the bed, I'll, you, we'll all stay here with you. No, man, I know if I, if I go to sleep, I'm never going to wake up. And I said, well, listen, why don't we, maybe if you eat something, you know, food will maybe bring it down a little bit. So we ordered room service and he took one bite of the food and threw the fork. I'm going to choke. I know if I eat, I'm going to choke. I mean, it was just, it was unbelievable. 
it was really, I mean, was, aside from the fact that it was, that he was actually going through something traumatic to him, it was kind of funny, <laughs> you know, and, uh, that went on for the rest of the day. And my flight to see my sister was was the next morning. And so at the end of the day, he left and he went back to his room and I got up the next morning and left to go to Switzerland and never heard another word about it. And then I fly back to meet the band that weekend and I get to Italy or get to the hotel and I go down to eat something by myself and I'm sitting in the restaurant by myself. And then Paul comes in the restaurant by himself and he's sitting at the table a few tables away. And that's where, <laughs> where I started hearing, hey, it's the Pusher Man, God damn. The push. And he's singing the song. And yeah. And I go, what are you talking about? Oh, Eric confessed. <laughs> and of course he threw me under the bus as the instigator I, I didn't do anything wrong I mean, he wanted to do it and it was legal in where we were so what's the problem you know but yeah it was he paul wasn't mad it was just uh you know another another opportunity to to bust eric's balls basically and you know and because of the way eric handled it it became a thing, but you know, they, they weren't really mad. They just kind of thought it was funny, but that's, <laughs> that's where that came from. So never, never miss an opportunity to put some heat on someone. Right. So, right. Well, that's, yeah, that was the kiss way. <laughs> so a- after Italy, you're in, you're in Paris and right from the schedule, it's, uh, there's a couple of days of rehearsals there for some odd yes. reason. Uh, before the Zenith show. What was mm-hmm. the purpose of those rehearsals at this very late stage? Do you recall? Well, I, I, I don't, I didn't realize it was that far into the, the non-monster shows. I, I kind of thought it was the beginning of that leg of the tour and that they were rehearsing to go over the stuff that we were going to add to the set that wasn't part of the monster set. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Um, how, how close to the end was Paris? Um, pretty, pretty close. I mean, this is September, September the 11th. So it's, you know, right before the first show with uh, the Kings of the Sun. So it is probably exactly what you've just suggested, you know, to adjust for the stuff that was going to lengthen the the set out. Yeah, that's, that's the way I remembered it. And and didn't we do two nights there at the the Zenith? No, one night, one night at the Zenith, two days rehearsals there. And and that was for for Paris. Yeah, that was, that was fun. Once you're on a regular tour, you know, did, you know, kind of the, the vibe change, you're off the Monsters tour, and now you're just into what is a, a regular European tour, a lot of shows in Scandinavia on this yeah. leg, um, and a massive, I guess, uh, tour of England um, and Scotland, yeah. so anything stand out there? I, we'll talk about the final show at, at the end here, but, uh, you know, any just over overall... Um, thoughts on this section of the tour where you're, you're just touring with Kings of the Sun? Well, I'll tell you, in Newcastle, which was during that leg, Paul was still dating Samantha Fox. And I used to travel with my golf clubs because I, I like to play golf. And I was going to play golf because, I, you know, here we are going to, like close to the birthplace of, of the game. And so I was really looking forward to going and playing. And Paul decided he wanted to come along and play. And so Paul, Samantha, Samantha's assistant, and our security guy, who's named Graham at the time, all went to the local golf course. And of course, uh, they were turned, we were all turned away because 
Samantha and Paul were not dressed in appropriate golf clothes. So Paul ended up having to buy, he went into the shop and bought appropriate golf clothes for them. And they gave us a, a, a golf pro to give us a, a lesson before they let us out of the course, <laughs> which of course I videotaped. <laughs> and uh, we ended up playing around the golf and that was hilarious because like I said, none of them had ever played before. And so it was the first time any of them had swung a golf club and uh, I thought cause he couldn't hit the ball and it's I, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to get an image of Paul Stanley circa 1988 wearing golf gear and holding a golf club. I mean that that is almost a priceless image to try and conjure. I'll, I'll send you a video clip. <laughs> <laughs> With yeah, Samantha I mean, Fox, I mean that just adds to it, right? Oh yeah, yeah. That well, that's you know that's the thing because Paul used to love you know he, you you he would mug for the camera every time the camera came on him. And, you know, I have footage of us in uh, Budapest walking in the streets and, you know, and he was hilarious and he could be hilarious when he was on like that, you know, and at the golf course, although he started out that way, it ended up becoming kind of like, get the camera off me kind of thing because he, he didn't want to look bad on the camera. But it was really funny to watch him try to swing and miss the ball. And he didn't have a very nice looking golf swing. I'll say that. <laughs> and I doubt he ever played again. I'm glad you did this in Newcastle and not in St. Mm-hmm. Andrews. That, that, yeah. that, would have been, that would have been morally wrong to have Paul Stanley on a golf course in Scotland in the birthplace yeah, absolutely. of golf. Absolutely. Let's talk about the last show of the tour, and okay. that's uh, Kings Hall, Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, yeah. Bruce has made plenty of comments about this show, and I've nicknamed it the Gobs of Thunder show. Um, <laughs> from your vantage point, was this the one show where you were very thankful to be behind stage and Absolutely. not within reaching distance? I, Tell us about this show. I don't show. know what I would have done. I don't know what I would have done. I've never been in a situation because you know the problem with those things like that or the piss bottle at Donington is that and, you, and you're briefed about this before the shows by the people putting on the shows they tell you that the worst thing that you can do is react to it and if you do anything and act like you're mad about it it's going to happen 10 times more so you can't even like try to dodge it or try to avoid it or do anything duck or anything because then you're just going to get it worse so i don't know how anybody could do it and deal with it the way they did and paul especially because he was getting nailed constantly constantly and it was just disgusting i mean it was it was was spit dripping off his knuckles on the guitar it was dripping off the guitar it was just absolutely disgusting but Towards the middle or the, towards the end of the show, he had had enough. And he did his little dance up to the front of the stage. And I guess there was one guy in particular who had been nailing him all night long. And Paul goes up to the front of the stage and with his right hand, he kind of motions to the people around the guy, like, you move that way and you move that way. And then he just leaned over and spit right in the guy's face. <laughs> it was uh, great. Uh, you you, you got to love Paul. He, he knows how to work the audience and take yes. care of them as well sometimes. 
to say was that was the best part of the show for me. And that's probably one of the most vivid memories of that show for me was that. That and the amount of spit that came on the stage. <laughs> and and you managed to put it, you put in a, a full set that night, including yes. a whole lot of love. Um, one thing I notice on these sets is, you know, Oh Susanna obviously comes in now and then. La Bamba, <laughs> a bit of that. Stairway to Heaven, whole lot of love. The, the whole of that one. You know, how did that section of the show work? Was it just, you know, you're briefed in that they may or may not, and just uh, adapt. Yeah, was this set up that they knew what they were well, going to do each night? They did these little jam sections. Paul was a huge Zeppelin fan, and you know, sound checks for that band were always a jam session of Led Zeppelin's greatest hits. That's what we would do every afternoon. So it wasn't the first time we ever played the songs, but you know, we never played them in front of an audience. So you know, when a song like that gets pulled out, there's there's no no discussion really necessary and it wasn't planned it just happened i guess you know being the last show and everybody you know finally like that that feeling of you know letting go because the tour is over they just did a couple of spontaneous things you know that uh everybody just jumped on and followed along but it wasn't anything that was talked about or rehearsed or anything so you mentioned earlier that uh, for this show you were briefed about not reacting to the audience or, or you'd get even more back from them. Um, just a little quick side note. Were you guys briefed about, obviously, the troubles that were occurring in Northern yes. Ireland about sa- and oh, safety? Absolutely. How was yeah. that handled at the time? Well, throughout the entire summer, that show was canceled and not canceled and canceled and not canceled because it was a dangerous show, you know? And um, this, we, our, our security guy that I mentioned that came to play golf with us was an ex-SAS uh, agent guy. You know, he was like a, a, you know, the equivalent of like a Navy SEAL. You know, he was a trained killer, basically. And we had heavy security because of the show. And we weren't really thrilled with the idea of going. Most bands that put that show on their schedules ended up canceling it before they got there. And so... I guess the guys kind of felt bad for the kids of, of the country there and, and felt like they're so deprived of any entertainment and probably really need a, a break. And so, you know, plus it was an opportunity to in, ensure a sellout crowd. And so they decided to go ahead with it. And, you know, they took some precautions. We had a meeting about, uh, I, I remember them ta- sitting in the room and having them tell us about, like, warning us, like, but not to walk too close to the cars parked on the curb if you're walking down the street because of car bombs and not to stay on the top floor of hotels because of people repelling off the It's like, what are, you, what are you talking, where are we going, you know? And the hotel that we stayed at was, it looked like, it looked more like Folsom Prison or, or Alcatraz, and, you know, the razor wire around the, top of the fence and huge gates and and we must have gone through five or six checkpoints military armed checkpoints in our vehicle going from the airport it was really a scary feeling you know and there weren't very few people aside from the band's party in in the hotel that we stayed at and uh it was eerie it definitely was eerie we couldn't wait to get out of there and we basically did it like six the next morning after the show. We didn't fly in till four or something like that in the afternoon. 
And we went straight to the venue, did our show, went to the hotel, got a few hours sleep and got out of there. It was really a, a little bit tense. And a lot of the guys didn't really want to be there. You know, a little nervous because, you know, if, if things went wrong, that would have been a really bad way to end the tour. Yeah, I, I think I think knowing the, the, the period of time and the troubles itself, it, you know, a great deal of respect has to be given to Kiss to actually playing that show and finishing the tour there. So, yeah, um, yeah. Fortunately, it was other than being spat on all night and, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a good show and a strong finish to the tour. If you had to pick one and and a single one, what would be a high point from this part, this this working with the band? I would say Donington. I'd have to say Donington. You know, it was also a very well received Kiss show. Um, the reviews of the band at that point, because because of the changes they made in the set and adding back a lot of the classic stuff that we added back in at that point, it, you know, the, the reviews and like Kerrang and Metal Hammer and whatever magazines were there and, you know, the big rock magazines at the time, the reviews of the show were really positive, which wasn't the case for everything that was going on the prior year. You know, there was a lot of negative stuff written because of the crazy nights record. And, um, so, yeah, it was a really successful show as, as that goes. And, you know, Kiss is a really um, great show, and they're very competitive guys. And so the fact that they were not the headliners and, you know, went on time of day that we went on and all of that combined put a little extra fire under them to go out and play a great show. And and that was the thing about that show is because we didn't have the pyro and the show to lean on, they went out and played their asses off. And, you know, and it, and it was noticed by whoever was there, you know. And so I, I would say that was definitely the, the highlight for me. Oddly, uh, as an English guy, uh, I, I was actually there at the time i didn't make it to donnington but uh it was a good time to be a kiss fan in britain because of crazy nights which is why i'm i'm doing this whole 30th anniversary celebration for it it's uh you know just one of those strange things my last question you'll be happy mm -hmm. to hear is you come off this tour four months later um february 89 paul heads out on his solo tour and you're a member of that band was yeah. there any talk about the solo tour during this tour um and at what point did you get invited to be a part of that band with Eric Singer, Bob Kulick, and Dennis St. James? Dennis, yeah, Dennis St. James. That was, no, that, that that didn't happen until probably two or three weeks before we started the rehearsals. It was kind of a, a last-minute thing. It, it was just a, a whim, it seemed like, more than anything else. And Paul called me up and said, listen, you know, I, I'm thinking about going out and doing a solo tour. He had never gotten to do any shows around the solo records that they had all done back in the day. And so there were songs that he wanted to play from that. And he just wanted to go out and have fun and play, play some clubs and get back to like feeling like a young up and coming band again. So we played all these clubs that, you know, bands played in like hammer jacks and, and it was a blast. I mean, we, we were still staying at four seasons and we still had a bus and, and, and and tour manager and accountant and you know but the venues were clubs and very intimate and very uh every one of them was like an event you know they were packed way beyond capacity people were really excited about them paul was in a very 
relaxed state of mind at that point because it wasn't Kiss. He didn't have to compete for the spotlight with Gene. He didn't have to compromise anything that he wanted to do because of, of Gene or, you know, not that that's a bad thing, but, you know, it was just an opportunity for him to go out and do his own thing. And he, he seemed to really enjoy it. And he really, he was more fun on that tour than any other time I spent with him because he was so relaxed and, you know, just about having fun. And, and the band was great. You know, it was a really killer band and, you know, Eric Singer, great drummer. And, you know, Bob was, a, was a, is, is a great guitar player and, you know, was a perfect guy for that band and was a perfect fit. You know, this was his opportunity to show that. So it was it was great. Were you given any different brief about uh, the keyboards? It was just a matter of you did it before, come and do the same thing on this tour. Yeah, it was pretty much that. Um, it, it, of course, you know, I was on stage, so it was a different thing there. Um, and the fact that I guess I wasn't hidden meant that what I played didn't have to be as inside of their parts as, as what I usually did. But on the songs that, we played with Kiss. I played them the same as I played them with the band. It was like I said before. I was I wanted to do what was best for the music, not to show off my keyboard playing skills in in the song. So my parts didn't change. Um, you know, I might have gotten some newer keyboards at the time and maybe changed where the sounds were coming from a little bit, and so maybe it changed a little bit. But as far as the approach, it was still the same same thing, with the exception of a couple of songs like. Um, uh, what's the ballad that we played? Um, oh, I'm, forever. I'm, I'm playing or the hide part. your heart. No, no, there's a. Uh, um, I think it's from maybe it's from Paul Solo. No, maybe I don't. Wait, uh, I don't know. Tonight, who you, was... tonight you belong to me. No. I'll, I'll I'll even look it up. Let's see, eighty-nine. Real slow song. Um, tears are falling. I still mm-hmm. love you. Yes, I still love you. That's the, like epic, I remember, the epic song. Yes. Yeah. So that I got to, you know, play a little bit more and, you know, the, the, the keyboard parts and that were a little bit more keyboardish than than normal for, for a Kiss song. So, you know, but, but for the most part, you know, I, like most, a lot of guys that, that I've played with, like Fred from Cinderella still refers to me as, you know, the, a keyboard player that should have been a guitar player, you know, because that's the way I approach things. And, you know, when I whenever I play with bands like like Kiss or Cinderella or bands like that, I always approach my parts that way of fitting in as though I'm the rhythm guitar player as opposed to playing twinkly, sparkly stuff that sits on top like a lot of keyboard players would, you know. And so it wasn't ever a, a, an, an effort. To go for me to go into the playing that way, you know, I was very into like John Ward from Deep Purple and the way he played on the organ was very much that way. It wasn't about like showing how fast you could play or how many notes you could play. It was making the keyboard sound as mean as possible and compete with the guitars for, in that way. And that's always the way I approached it. That's my lot, Gary. Two okay. hours. But I, I very much appreciate the amount of time that you've given me. Okay, sounds good. All right now, now I got I still owe you one story though. Once the tape recorder stopped. <laughs> All right. Thank you for spending time listening to the KISS FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. 
If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again.